On a more serious note, I felt like the Lord had a, have a heavy word for us this evening. So if you're taking notes, the title is The Religious Attitude. It's a common theme that's been coming up in our services or in worship of late. And so um, the Lord's just been kind of stirring on my heart for a while, and then it just keeps repeating and, and coming up. So I, I do feel like um, this is the appropriate time for the word. You know, religion is a word that has been hijacked. Most both inside and outside the church would associate it with legalism. And there's good reason to go after the negative connotations associated with religion, and I'm going to go after them tonight. Um, you know, if you read through the Gospels, you see uh, a good chunk of Jesus' ministry was uh, him confronting the religious leaders of the day and confronting the religious thoughts and actions of, of even his own disciples. And in, in Acts and the epistles, we see that continued on um, where opposition didn't just come from the world or from the Gentiles, but from the Jewish leaders, the very ones who were supposed to be looking for the Messiah, they completely missed him. And not only did they completely miss him, they killed him. So religion, taking to its extreme, is hostile to God. So the Pharisee's story should be a warning to us all that it is capable to be that blind. <clears throat> now, I don't think anyone here um, is blind enough that we would shed the blood of Christ, but again, it's, it's a warning that you know, we have to be on guard for our own religious attitudes that would want to quench his Holy Spirit. So he who has eyes to see tonight, he who has ears to hear tonight, let him see, let him hear. When Jesus said these things, he was speaking in the spiritual. Everyone in, the, in his audience, they had physical eyes, they had physical ears, but he was talking of the realm beyond that and trying to get beyond those religious attitudes that people were carrying and trying to impart deeper wisdom into their hearts and into their minds. So I'm going to be bouncing around different scriptures tonight. I'm going to start in James 1, 26 and 27. Uh, we'll just speak quickly there, and a lot of the text is, is in Matthew. Um, and again, I'm not going to be dwelling on, on too many, but I would just probably open up to Matthew and, and be ready to flip pages if you like uh, following around in your Bibles. James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion. Here, here we're about to religion is a good thing. Who knew religion is a good thing? James is about to tell us. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That word unstained is aspilos in the Greek, transliterated would be A-S-P-E-L-O-S, if you cared for that. Um, and it's the same description that Peter offers of, of Jesus' blood in 1 Peter 3. So thinking of the purity of Jesus' blood, it means to be unblemished, without spot, pure, clean, useful, holy, blameless, honored, and of good reputation. See, the world's going to try to pollute us and stain us, and it is possible to be unstained. God's grace is our magic eraser, consecrated lifestyles, pure religion is how we use it less. Obviously, this isn't a license to abuse God's grace. You know, Paul in Romans 6 says, um, you know, should my sin increase um, so that God's grace can increase? By no means, absolutely not. 100,000 times no, if you could translate it that way in your Bible. That's how strong of an emphasis Paul says, don't go continuing on in sin. James continues on in, 
in his letter in James chapter 4 to him who knows the right thing to do but does not do it. To him it is sin. So sin can make hypocrites of us all to say and know the right thing but not to do it. And so that is, um, you know, hypocrisy was, was the chief offense that Jesus was always leveling at the Pharisees. And, and he was calling them higher when he was calling them hypocrites. And so with the religious attitude, uh, hypocrisy may not look so overt with acts of the flesh like sexual immorality or, or drunkenness, but it can take much more subtle forms, and we'll get into that as we go on this evening. See, they heard and read of the love of God over and over and over again, and yet responded with rules and tradition that sometimes applied to everyone but themselves. Being unstained by the world is not talking like the world does, but it's also being consistent, again, in speech and in deed. We take away from our witness when we're being hypocritical. Who here knows someone who has stayed away from the church or was once that person because they thought it was just full of a bunch of hypocrites? To be unstained, to be of good reputation, takes consistency, takes time sadly come crashing down in a moment. You wouldn't think of me to be a follower of Christ if I left here and started yelling profanities at the television because my basketball team was playing poorly. Or if I shamed someone on the comment section in Facebook because they disagreed with me on some social issue of the day. Or if I talk about family and relationship and meanwhile my wife and children are neglected at home. See, the truth of the matter is Jesus came and fulfilled the law and the prophets and he raised the bar. He is our standard of righteousness. And our faults come when we start limiting God with our constructs of religion. So I want to examine those religious attitudes tonight, help us identify it in ourselves and in the world around us so that we can improve our walk and hopefully repent of any religious attitude that we might be carrying and, and as well as help others come along to come out of it. You know, we were singing and dancing last Sunday about where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And what we're going after, freedom from what? I mean, freedom from sin, absolutely, but freedom to jump up and down and be excited like David was when the ark was coming into the city. So if you're taking notes, you can just write the religious attitude, colon, and there's going to be 14 points tonight. Paul likes to preach in a uh, in series of seven, so I'm doing 14 because I'm, I'm twice the preacher he is. <laughs> All right, so point number one, the religious attitude shows favoritism and loves titles. In James chapter two, don't hold your faith in our Lord with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and you pay special attention to him, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? If you are fulfilling the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, the religious attitude doesn't want to be associated with what is unfamiliar or lesser than them. They didn't like when Jesus ate with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. The religious attitude wants to stiff arm the most irreconcilable. 
Jesus' ministry was for the sick and the lost, not the righteous. He said it himself in Matthew 22, 38. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. See, the most receptive to the gospel are oftentimes the most ashamed, or the most guilty, or the most trapped in sin and addiction and bondage. And we love to hear their testimonies, but typically when it's, you know, one, two, five, ten years from their saving grace moment until now. It's easy to be in relationship with those who have been following the Lord for a long time. But God is calling us into the highways, into the byways, and to be willing to get into the muck and the mire and maybe plant that first seed in someone's life and help them come out of the swamp, Right? and not stiff-arm them just because, oh, well, that, that might get a little messy. That might be a little difficult to disciple that person. Thank God for the men and women in my life who were willing to reach into the swamp to help me when I was lost and, you know, just some broke, dumb college kid who just got married. And here I am today because of faithful men and women, and, you know, I don't want to be guilty of, of not being a blessing in someone's life because of a religious attitude operating in me. Jesus in Matthew 23 <clears throat> talks about how the Pharisees love respectful greetings and being called rabbi, which means, oh, great one. I'll read to you a passage from a book here, The Altar, Preparing for the Return of Jesus Christ by Jeremiah Johnson. Jerry was here in December, has a very strong prophetic calling on his life and prophetic ministry, and he wrote this book, and I highly recommend it, and um, he goes after the religious attitude and spirit right here. I absolutely, I absolutely believe in order in the global church, but order is designed to facilitate life. I absolutely believe in form, but form is designed in the kingdom of God to give birth to power. I believe an altar of religious control and performance was built in many nations in the 1980s and 90s. A megachurch movement mentality was adopted that fostered a performance model of church that was more focused on attendance and large offerings than the movement of the Holy Spirit. An unhealthy emphasis on fivefold ministry titles was embraced, and the saints were robbed of their inheritance as the priesthood of all believers. See, titles help create barriers to service. Oh, we have a missions pastor, so someone's taking care of that. There's a worship leader. They're, they're going to take care of that. They're in charge of, of bringing us into God's presence. And what if we all came and one had a song and one had a hymn and one had a prayer? And then we'll turn it on over to the executive lead pastor and, and he'll take care of all the teaching and the shepherding. You know, that, these titles have, have robbed us of, of what God is asking us to do and how we can function. You don't have to be in full-time ministry in order to function. In showing favoritism, we make distinctions amongst ourselves because ultimately it says, I want to be in that place, and when I'm there, I hope someone recognizes me and shows me favor. Do you notice it's the desperate who want more of God? Consistently, we see the religious stiff-arming God and his kingdom and his people. Well, we witness the desperate just trying to cling on to the hem of his garment. Or if I could just talk to him, my servant would be healed. He doesn't even have to show up. If I can just 
touch his garment, I'd be healed. Sadly, the church is busy entertaining and promoting platforms when it should be fasting and praying and longing for the bridegroom's return with great joy and great expectancy. Point two, the religious attitude wants to be noticed. In Matthew 23, verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. When they fast, they put on their gloomy faces and when they pray, it was in front of everyone and when they tithed, it was also not done in secret. You know, what is it in in man that when he does something good wants to roll out the red comp? the red carpet and make sure all the trumpets are playing just so it gets noticed. You know, maybe that's not a struggle for anyone in here. And maybe it looks more like, hey, look at this wonderful move of God and the role that I had in it. Instead of just allowing God to have all the credit and all the glory. Right? It's been said here before. I don't know whose quote it is. Probably Paul's. But who who cares who gets the credit so long as God gets the glory? God wants to honor those who love him in public and in private. And often the reward is is waiting for us in heaven, in in eternity and not the temporary. You know, maybe the church in America doesn't see as many widespread healings and miracles as we would think because it would just want to take a selfie with it and document the moment and try to take away from what God was doing in that moment. Point three. The religious attitude uses the Lord, the Lord for personal gain. Matthew seven twenty two and 23, perhaps the most sobering verses in, in the New Testament. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name? You know, if you're, if you're calling upon the name of the Lord for personal gain, he's got issue with you. It, it's going to be his response in verse 23, depart from me, I never knew you. See, God is after relationship. Love must be our motivator for wanting to see the kingdom of heaven manifest in our lives and in the lives of those around us. It has to be love. Number four, the religious attitude lacks authority, relies on the letter of the law in relation, sorry, it relies on the letter of the law and knowledge instead of supplementing it with spirit and experience. In Matthew 7, Jesus just got finished teaching the Sermon on the mountain, and, and the crowds around said, it, the scriptures say that they were astonished because they were teaching him with one who had authority. He had authority because he was in tune with God's voice. You know, what was Jesus doing in the previous 30 years? What was he doing in private that was that he was cultivating, where all of a sudden he bursts on the scene and he has the most impactful ministry that anyone's ever seen. And it's not because, obviously he was God, but he didn't use his divinity in order to, you know, pull a fast one on us and say, hey, look how great I am, right? He was fully human as well. So when Jesus was finally released by the Father to start his public ministry, he didn't have to strive for any of it. The wisdom, the teachings, the miracles, the healings were all natural fruits of a private cultivation of God's presence in his life. Again, he, he, he knew God. 
He didn't just, sorry, he loved God. He didn't just know him. And it was out of this love that his authority came as well. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And unfortunately, we've made the equation that <clears throat> somehow knowledge equals maturity, where really God is calling us to abide in his love, and that's when we start maturing, and that's when we start bearing fruit. The Pharisees, they knew a lot. They knew their scriptures. And yet Jesus reminded them time after time, haven't you, haven't you read? They neglected the weightier provisions of the law in favor of things that were easier to observe and focus on you know, tithing and praying and fasting. It's easy to check the box of knowledge. There will always be more studying. There will always be time for meditation and for more reading. Jesus said that this is eternal life, that they will know you. So we get to spend an eternity getting to know God, which is a crazy statement to make, right? And maybe I'm an interesting guy. Maybe I'm not. Probably only take a couple years to, to get to know me. But to get to know one person is going to take an eternity. And to get to know his love, his patience, his justice, his faithfulness, each one could be a separate eternity. <laughs> so... That's a mind-blowing thought and probably another sermon. But my point is that knowledge is something that we can grow in without experience necessarily. Where checking the box of love, it's always going to be an unfinished task. Picking up our cross daily, it's a choice. It's not a feeling. And it's a choice that we have to make until we draw our last breath. The religious attitude is blind. This is a two-parter. Um, blind to their own sickness of self-righteousness. In Luke 19, the, sort, the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Jesus called him uh, to have a banquet for, for Jesus, and it was said that all the people, not just the Pharisees this time, but all the people, they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Can't you just hear the religious attitude in that statement? Shouldn't they have been rejoicing that a sinner was wanting to host God? that a sinner was coming and recognizing all of his faults, that he was in sin and that he wanted to repent and he wanted to honor the Lord and have a banquet for him? I mean, what if, what would our response be if we drove by a bar and there was a Bible study taking place in the parking lot because the kingdom of God manifested right there? And that'd be incredible. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But, some of the religious attitudes out there would say, oh, wait a second. You're doing what with who? Part two of the blindness is, is spiritual blindness. In Matthew 9, Jesus casts out a demon. Instead of rejoicing and being all of what God was doing, they closed their eyes and leveled an illogical explanation saying, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Then Jesus dismantled and said, a house divided cannot stand. And how true the division of the church is, too. And how divided we've become. We've lost our voice because there are many voices and they're not crying out in unison. In Ephesians 4, 29 and 31, Paul, speaking in the context of unity with the Spirit, says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment 
that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by you who are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice be put away from you. He was speaking to the church in that letter. He wasn't speaking to the world. He was speaking to the church about, hey, don't be doing these things to one another. So if there's malice in our hearts towards someone who disagrees with us theologically, you know, on minor points, I'm not talking about if someone says, I believe in Jesus and he's not the son of God. Like that, Okay, that's, you need to get in their face about that one. But if there's malice in your heart over, was the Sabbath supposed to be on Saturday versus Sunday, or do we do communion with unleavened bread or leavened bread? Like, come on, let's, let's get over our differences and pursue God together. Because the division in the church, it really does break the heart of God. And what breaks his heart should break ours as well. If you want to read a good book on, on unity, Francis Chan's Until Unity uh, is a great resource. Um, here's one quote. Um, I chose this quote because it really does speak to the heart of the religious attitude. Many churches have forgotten the point of their existence. They can quick, quickly focus on the complaints of the people rather than the cries of the lost. We get more emotional over Christians leaving to go to a different church than we do about people dying and going to hell. Something is horribly wrong when we grieve more deeply over people rejecting us than those who reject their Messiah. Again, I, I chose this quote because the religious attitude says, you know, my reputation and the opinions of man are more important to me than doing what God has asked. And the religious attitude can be so blind it wants God to prove himself even more despite plain evidence right in front of them. In Matthew 12, 38, remember when the scribes and the Pharisees asked for another sign? <clears throat> and this was just after Jesus heals a blind and dumb man who was possessed uh, by a demon right in front of them. And they asked for yet another sign. And Jesus replies and says, no sign will be given to you. See, our blindness can lead to a lack of faith and can cut off spiritual blessings. I, I'm convinced that had they responded with childlike faith and a childlike pursuit of God and excitement about what God had just done in their midst, that they probably would have seen even more healings and had more revelation of God the Father. Instead, they were basically filled with doubt and said, do it again. My lying eyes deceive me. So if you here have a testimony, if you have experienced God show up in your finances, or if you've experienced him show up in your body and has healed you of a broken bone or of cancer or of some kind of illness or sickness, or there's a loved one to you who was miraculously saved from a car accident or overdose or you name it, you hold on to that. That was God. We can't get caught up in, God, what have you done for me lately? God, you've been here. You've been tracking me down with your goodness every day of my life. But the religious attitude creeps in and helps us to forget. Point six, uh, the religious attitude is controlling. Instead of allowing God to move outside the framework and current thought patterns, the religious attitude seeks to put structure on everything with no give in the joints. There's a re reason why in the body is an apt analogy that, that Paul and Jesus used for the church. Because bodies grow, and they have joints, and they're flexible. And yet the American church and America at large wants to define it just as a building. And that's why church 
was so easy to shut down when the COVID lockdowns came through. It's easy to control something that only meets one time for one hour once a week. And it's no wonder that the world viewed us as non-essential. But we are the church. We are the ecclesia of God. We're living stones being built up together, and we should have all been crying out in unison, we're not going to neglect the gathering of the saints, Hebrews 10.25. And if the world insisted on continuing to shut us down, then we meet in parks and in our homes and in the streets. See, man's religion contributed as much as anything to the ease of which the churches got shut down. Can't you do it online, they asked. And the response was, yes, we'll just, we'll just shorten the leash on God a little bit more. You know, Paul, a number of weeks ago, gave a few points on doing church online and the things that can't happen when you're watching on your computer. I guess this would be a good time to say hello to those watching online. <laughs> right? There is certainly grace from God and from this house and this leadership team for those who can't make it um, for one reason or another. But I do want to hammer home a, a couple points that Paul made. Uh, you can't experience the river of God, of God's grace, like you can in person. Uh, we were just on vacation in Orange Beach, Alabama, and it was a great time of relaxation and, and rest and, and hearing the Lord's voice and, you know, just being overcome with, you, you really do feel small when you look at the big, vast expanse that is the ocean. Um, but, you know, we, we got back on Saturday, the next day was Mother's Day, and I walked through the doors, and uh, I'm like, man, this is home. I was missing out. I was watching online, but you just can't interact. I could tell the spirit was there. He was moving. It was powerful, but there was a barrier, not just it was 700 miles in a, in a computer screen was, was the problem. And you also can't be fully equipped for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's Ephesians 4.12. You can't prophesy to a computer screen. You can't interpret a tongue with your headphones in. The religious attitude of self-importance has even crept into some five-fold ministers who think the saints will be equipped if we would just listen to one more sermon a week. You know, how about we get relational? And instead of seeking platforms, we get a little messy. We spur one another on to love and good deeds. We commune with one another. We break, break bread together. We weep together. We rejoice together. Yes, there's a time and a place for podcasts and schools of ministry and conferences, and, and I do all those things, and, and they are great. I'm blessing If you're blessed by you know, healthy ministries, praise the Lord, hallelujah. But it just can't be the pinnacle of our walk with God. We have to have it for ourselves. I wrote here, how can you visit and care for... Sorry. The religious attitude removes the relationship and replaces it with the precepts of men. True religion rests on relationship. How can you visit and care for widows and orphans if you do not know one? How can you be unstained by the world unless you are in communion with the citizens of heaven and the man Jesus Christ who created both the heavens and its citizens? The religious attitude is legalistic. That's point seven in Matthew 15. Reading verses 8 to 11. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. He's speaking to the Pharisees. 
These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Again in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. The religious response protects yesterday's bread. They have nothing new and authentic to give away and therefore get upset when a piece of bread comes along that's cut a little bit differently or has a little bit of sage on it or a little bit of spice or has some glorious homemade jelly slathered on top. So in America, that different flavor looks like the Holy Spirit given rule and reign. It looks like healings and tongues. We need to be unashamed of the flavor of jam the Lord has so graciously given us and be willing to share and unload fresh jam onto those plates who have been only fed with stale biscuits. So there's two kind of legalists that the Lord has highlighted to me. One, we'll just call them the traditional legalists. I think they're pretty easy to identify, and as I've been sharing tonight, and I'm sure maybe some one or um, belief system has, has come to mind, um, but basically it, they boil it down to, like the Pharisees of old, authentic relationship with God uh, is a box-checking exercise. Whereas the second group, um, calling them the, the guardians of casual Christianity. And their rules and diktats are far more subtle. Think uh, the great suggestion as opposed to the great commission, as, as Daniel was uh, jokingly referring to it last week. You know, it may say that the guardians of casual Christianity may say something like, hey, you know, I know what the Bible says, but, you know, we're just glad that they're here and, and we don't want to offend them. Or, you know, maybe just tone it down a little bit. You know, let's talk about something else. You've, you've turned up the temperature in the room too hot, and, and now I'm uncomfortable, and everyone else is too. You know, in case we haven't noticed, the church and society at large is in decline, and it's no surprise to me that it's declined with the amount of compromise that has slipped into the church. Yeah. And so it's time for repentance and a message of salvation and conviction to be a mainstay in every pulpit. And it's also time for not just the message to be that, but for the messengers to repent as well, for not being willing to preach the full gospel to a dying world. Point eight, the religious attitude is easily offended and entitled. I don't think being offended or entitled is... Uh, reserved just for the religious, but time and again, we, we do see that being a common response uh, from them. And being offended and entitled, it's a, it's a sin problem. It's a fallen nature problem. But the world is constantly offending. So why isn't the church? And not for just to do it for offense sake, but why aren't we being bold? And Jesus acknowledged as much that the truth is offensive and that the truth cuts Matthew 15 and verse 13, 
uh, after it was just explained to him, like, hey, you just really offended the Pharisees, he replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Notice Jesus didn't apologize. No. He, he basically just kind of moved on and said, the truth can be offensive. One way or another, God's going to build his kingdom, and he will plant his garden. And if it's not from him, it's getting uprooted. And sadly, I think we've built up a lot of structures that, wasn't, that weren't blessed by the Lord. And so those things are getting uprooted. In Matthew 20, 1 through 16, we have the parable of the workers in the vineyard. If you uh, remember, all were agreeing, all these workers were coming and agreeing to work for the same wage, uh, but at different variables of the day. So in layman's terms, uh, some showed up at 9 o'clock, and the vineyard owner agreed to pay them $100 for the day. And then another group came along at 11 o'clock, and their wage was the same. And another group came along at 1, and, and then the last one came along at 4 o'clock, and they were still paid $100. And then, hey, let's punch the time clock, 5 o'clock, we're out, I'm going to pay you all. And he starts by paying those that showed up at 4, and he gave them 100 bucks. And then the workers who, who were there longer were starting to get offended. They were feeling entitled, like, hey, what's up with that? But the vineyard grower's response was, what is it to you? that I am generous, and I, it, it's mine. I can do with it as I please. And so, you know, the religious attitude in us says, hey, I, I've worked for the Lord harder or longer, but what is it to us if God decides to bring a prodigal home at 85 years of age at the same time he, he's in paradise and in heaven with a brother who's been serving the Lord for 60 years? You know, because in light of eternity, 60 days or 60 years, it's nothing. 60... Yeah. Entitled people lack an eternal perspective. In Luke 15, that's the parable of the prodigal son. I'll remind us of the older son's response at the news of his brother finally coming home. And it just oozes with pure entitlement. I'm going to let the text read for itself. Luke 15, 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him? I, 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 me, me, me. He, would, he was going to get his reward. He just had to wait a little bit longer. You know, and for some of us, that reward waits for us in heaven. Unfortunately, he may not have even realized that reward unless he repented of his religious attitude. Number nine, the religious attitude forgets about its saving grace moment. Sometimes this is because they didn't have a radical conversion experience, like Saul losing his sight on the way to Damascus, or someone whose life was you know, miraculously saved. So the religious attitude hasn't fully apprehended the depth of God's grace, nor the width and the chasm between, the fallen, between fallen man and God, which then contributes to self-righteousness. 
that when God saved us, he didn't get a good deal. We were all rags. You know, we, we'd, be, we'd do well to remember just how wicked sin is and remind ourselves that the love of God in the form of his son Jesus on the cross at Calgary bridged the gap between us and him. And we can point to Scripture to define sin, like what Daniel quoted last week, Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, the vile, murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, all liars, or you have Galatians 5.19. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, drunkenness, and the like, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, a more generic definition of sin is to miss the mark. John Piper gives us a great defin definition, which if we unpacked it, would be a whole, a whole sermon. Just listen to this. John Piper, sin, it is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. We've all been guilty of one or all of those things at some point. But let us not forget the grace of God and in turn have grace for the lost around us who are still stuck in sin and have a heart for the lost who do not know any better. We need to be sincerely grateful that we're not ensnared by what used to entangle us lest we end up like the Pharisee in the parable in Luke 18 who said, God, I thank you that I'm not like this swindler or this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. We need to drive out the Pharisee in all of us that wants to elevate ourselves over others because we've been following the Lord longer or have a more vibrant walk with him or do all the right things. There is room in God's house for all and there is room in God's house for all of us to grow. And the religious, would, the religious attitude would say amen to that statement but then add this group over here, you get the basement and by the way, your room will never be bigger than mine. Point 10, the religious attitude is hypocritical. I know I've kind of gone over this point, but just so you have it and we get to 14. The religious attitude is hypocritical. It leads by words and not by example. In Matthew 23, 2 to 4. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, referring to the Pharisees, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. 
Jesus is our example to, of how to not be hypocritical, to practice what we preach and preach what we practice. Point 11. The religious attitude kills true acts of God. In Matthew 23, verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I started tonight talking about how religion is hostile to God. And it's hostile to all the things that God wants to accomplish in our lives. Hostility will blind us and make us the chief roadblock to what God is trying to do. Point 12, the religious attitude lacks fruit. God is after right motives far more than he is after using us. We'll just take a look at the state of the American church. Daniel was lamenting it last week, last Wednesday. You know, we have bigger gatherings and bigger buildings and bigger offerings than we've ever had before, and yet the moral state of our country seems to be in exponential decline. You know, something's not working. We're not bearing the kind of fruit that we should be bearing. And I believe through COVID, God is waking up his bride all over this nation and the nations around this world who really want to know him, who really want to serve him, who really want to love him. And there's going to be an increase in darkness in the last days. And who's going to be ready for his glorious return? Who's going to be standing at the tower looking for the enemy out there? Warning of the deception that's out there. Who's going to be willing to stand in the gap? Who's in the fields harvesting? Who's going to be bearing fruit even though the conditions aren't ideal? If we have religious attitudes in our lives, we're not going to be doing those things. Point 13, the religious attitude grows in echo chambers. See, it was always a group of Pharisees. I can't recall a time where it was, you know, just one scribe or just one lawyer. It was always a group. When the disciples, when they became indignant about something, it was always plural, S, disciples. Or it was the crowds who muttered. The religious, the religious attitude suffers from groupthink. <clears throat> which is why, you know, here at our Father's house, we welcome trusted outside ministers into this body, whether it be Paul or Daniel or Elliot, myself, whomever's sharing. You know, we don't have what an outsider might have or the perspective that they might have. You know, granted, there is relationship there, but if you recall, if you've been coming long enough, how powerfully the Lord moved when, you know, Barry and Diane Nichols were here or when Derek and Ginger Kirkman were here or when Jeremiah Johnson was here or, or whomever else that I'm, that I'm missing. You know, God moves powerfully when we allow, you know, healthy ministries into our midst and we don't suffer from groupthink as well. And, and I know um, this leadership team and Paul has, has done an excellent job to try to expose us to good and other outside ministries. You know, and, and to combat echo chambers, you know, to make a concerted effort of, you know, these are some people, some books, some resources that, that feed us. You know, I've referenced a few here tonight. Um, we're part of a lar much larger body, and we're going to be much healthier locally in this expression and more unified in this expression and the, the bigger church, Big C Church at large, when we are exposed to um, healthy outside ministries. 
last point. I can't take credit for this one. And Taylor said it on her Mother's Day sermon, and it just it was so profound and um, fit perfectly with with what I was studying. The religious attitude is upset by extravagance. In Matthew 26, 6 through 9, it was the story of the woman who anointed Jesus with, with perfume right before he was um, to be crucified. You know, this, the disciples, you know, they became indignant again that, you know, how, how could you waste all this perfume? It could have been sold, and, you know, it sounded good, their response, right? That it could have been sold, and, and we could have fed the poor with it. Um, you know, as if honor didn't count for anything in the kingdom. And they forgot that, you know, couldn't God just raise up that sum of money some other way? You know, they had this they had the Old Testament too. They had the scriptures to remind them that all the cattle on a thousand hills are his, all the gold is his, all the silver is his. Our extravagant love of the Lord, our worship of him, our prayers to him, our sacrifices we make for him, they're going to agitate some people. Smith Wigglesworth said, considering the gathering of the saints, any assembly that puts its hand upon the, the working of the Spirit will surely dry up, dry up. The assembly must be as free in the Spirit as possible, and you must allow a certain amount of extravagance when people are getting through to God. If you want an assembly full of life, you must have one in which the Spirit of God is manifested. So as we, as we close out tonight, if you can... Just all stand with me. Just one more point and then, then I'll pray. And Michael, um, David's wife, became upset for dancing, for when David danced in the street as the ark was entering Jerusalem. You know, if it was up to her and her religious attitude, the Israelites wouldn't have experienced the tremendous blessing of that day and, and the feast that followed. So will we be willing to become even more undignified, to shed the shackles of religion in order to worship God, to love and to know him well, to lay down our reputation and to stop caring what others might think, that we may have more of God's presence in our lives? Father, I just ask that you would un unleash an abundance of oil upon us. Lord, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In Exodus 9, you declared to Pharaoh to let your people go so that we may worship you. Lord, we ask that you would bind up any religious attitudes and thinking that are holding us back from serving you more, from loving you more, from sharing the gospel more. Lord, we cry out and we repent for for our own religious attitudes, would you expose it in our lives that we may move on from them? Or do we ask you to, to show us the schemes of the enemy that might take your, your solid truth and your words and, and just twist it ever so slightly? Father, we ask that you would break up the fallow ground in our hearts and in this region, you want to pour out your spirit, Lord. And I know you want to use this fellowship as a lighthouse for many others in Hendricks County, in Indianapolis, in Indiana, in this region, Lord. We want to be hosts of your glory. We want to be hosts of your presence. You are, you are welcome, Lord Jesus.
You are welcome, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would bind up the religious attitudes in us and in others, that your spirit may roam freely and that signs and wonders and miracles will be commonplace and be a bigger witness and testimony to the dying world around us. Lord Jesus, we ask these things in your precious name, in your pure blood. Amen.